Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Good. Awesome. Some of us are raring to go right now. Um, my name is Aaron Cavan, and uh, I am, my wife Courtney and I had the opportunity to be here with you guys this weekend to, to do a couple things. One, as I understand it, to challenge you about mission as you go into your uh, global celebration, uh, global outreach celebration, and also to give an update about what God has done in the last two years as a result, and in great part, to the investment that Glenwood has made uh, in church planning in New England. Uh, my wife and I moved to, just to give you a brief recap, uh, my wife and I moved to Quincy, Massachusetts, which is just outside South Boston. Um, it's the fourth largest city in the Boston metro area, which uh, the Boston metro area being about 4.5 million. Um, and uh, Quincy is also the largest city in Norfolk County. Uh, Norfolk County as a whole uh, is approximately 1.4% evangelical Christian. Um, and so it's a very different category because statistically it fits the same category as many of these countries and it's, un, and it's being unreached. The difference is, um, is that there is access to the gospel and access to the Bibles. People are just over it. Um, it's very post-Christian in that sense and so in some ways it looks much more like Canada. And, and uh, as Corey and I were talking this last weekend as he was in Boston, looks, uh, there's a lot more parallels between us and Canada and Europe than there is uh, even with the Midwest. Um, and so uh, we find ourselves at a really awesome opportunity uh, moving to Quincy, not to bring Jesus there, but recognizing that Jesus is already there. God is already on mission in Quincy, and we want to join him there. And so we moved there back in 2007. We started Life Community Church in 2008, and we just celebrated our five-year anniversary um, a couple Sundays ago. And uh, what God has done in the last five years is nothing short of miraculous. Um, God continues to draw people to himself and by his grace through the work of Jesus Christ continues to save and redeem uh, humankind um, to be his restored image bearers and worshipers in this world. Um, where I was two years ago is a very interesting place because what happens typically um, is one of the things that we're seeing in terms of, of uh, mission and support um, is we're seeing a little bit of a change, particularly around what you would call home missions, which is essentially church planting in, in North America, particularly in the United States. Um, when I first went, I went with the same model in mind, which is I need to go out, do the travel thing, get the support, go to New England, start the church. And then after a little while, that, that support kind of starts to wane off. Um, in, in a place like, like New England, um, according to Southern Baptist Church statistics, it takes a, a minimum of seven years uh, for an evangelical church plant to be established and in in, in, uh, self-supporting. And so uh, we moved there, and the first three years had a, a good deal of support coming in, and, and I was kind of able to, to work on the church and do all those things and focus on the ministry there. Um, the problem was, is as that money started to go out, it's actually when I needed it the most. So let me explain. When I first moved there, uh, we started with my family in my living room. Um, and we started meeting people, neighbors, friends, people started to connect, and eventually this group of people outgrew my living room, and then we moved to uh, an elementary school, and now we're in a middle school. Um, but in those first early years, those first couple of years, uh, it wasn't as big of a deal for me to care for the 30 people that were in our church and still work a, a full-time job. Um, what happened was, so, so as that support started to wane, I started working more, um, I uh, spent a season working on a lobster boat and uh, just wherever I could get work and, and provide for my family. When I came to Glenwood, uh, I was at a place where the church had now grown to about 100 people. Um, it couldn't possibly, uh, financially then it couldn't support us. The problem was though is now more than ever is when I needed to be able to be full-time to care for the church and do the work of the ministry. So this was a very awkward place for me because we were in a place where the money was going, out, going away and the need was, was, going, uh, was, was rising. And so we basically said, this is what we need to do. We need to raise $50,000 over the next two years. And so we came to a couple churches, Glenwood being one of them, and basically said, we're asking you to go above and beyond what you're probably your typical standard would be for support for missionaries. We're asking you for $20,000 over the next two years. And Glenwood, uh, you prayed about it, made a decision, and, and made the decision to do that, as well as another church who uh, gave $24,000 over the next two years. And in the last two years, the church, by, by the grace of God, and, and, and in large part due to your efforts in, in financially supporting and prayer and partnership, uh, the church has grown from 100 to 200 in the last two years and is now financially stable, self-supporting, and can take care of my family as well as, well as pay our worship pastor full-time. 
So it's been a huge success in terms of for God's glory. Um, and I want you to be encouraged by that because I know sometimes they're, they're, we're all human, right? And so we, have, we only have so many pennies, right, in our, in our, in our piggy banks. And we often start to think, I, I, I kind of want to see some tangible results for this. And we know we give by faith. We know we trust that God is going to use this and that my money in my pocket can't multiply like it can in God's hands. We get that. Uh, but it is nice to hear that when you invest to begin to see some of the, the fruit from that and to see that this investment went somewhere. And so I want you to be encouraged. Don't stop with that. Continue on. Continue on to be obedient with the funding and the resources that God's given you and to use that as leverage for the sake of the gospel in the world. And so I want to say thank you guys uh, from the bottom of my heart because God used you as well as this other church particularly uh, in, in just an incredible way to kind of push us over that hill, if you will, when things were kind of starting to be like, I don't know if we can do this. Uh, it was awesome to have a church like yourself, brothers and sisters in Christ, that said, "Let's no, 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 we're, we got your back. We're going to keep pushing you up this hill. And so I'm very, very appreciative of that. And, uh, and we have benefited greatly from that. And so thank you uh, for your investment. Um, so I get the opportunity this morning to talk to you about mission. This is something that's, that's um, definitely um, something that I'm passionate about, something that I'm, I, I, I feel by God's grace I'm living. Um, but what's happened is, in the last couple of years as well, God has begun to do work in my heart and life, really opening my eyes to what mission truly is, and particularly what it looks like to lead a, a group of believers to live on mission. Um, a couple of years ago, I was, uh, I, I, I was kind of thinking through and evaluating, thinking to myself, man, um, I, I see, when I, when, I moved, when I moved to Quincy, I started meeting people and inviting my neighbors into my home and having dinner with them and, and befriending them and spiritual conversation was birthed from that and we begin to talk about Jesus and I would look for needs in the community and I would go join and, and volunteer for those organizations and, and join my community council and, 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 and Courtney and I would like all of our conversation, all of our life was ministry. We began to see that every single thing that we did was leverage for the sake of the gospel. God gave me a house, awesome. How can I use this as a weapon for the gospel? Uh, he's given us money and resources. How can, you, how can we leverage those as investment for the gospel? Um, our family, our, our involvement. Our, and, and, and so what you realize is, is that like I didn't, this wasn't something I turned on and turned off. All of life was ministry. This is what God's called me to do. Jesus is central to my life. The gospel's changed everything, and I can't do anything but live for his glory, for the sake of the, the glory of God and the good of peoples and the transformation of our world. And so every relationship, I, like in the back of my head, every neighbor I meet, it's not like, I'm not like trying, it's not the bait and switch kind of deal, but I just, I, I, if everyone I meet, I want this person to know Jesus. And so my, my mind can't help but think like a missionary. And what's funny is when I would travel and I would raise support, I never really looked at myself like a missionary because typically when we use the term missionary, we're talking about people like Corey or other people who go other parts of the world. So I showed up places and they're like, you can set up your table in the back. And I'm like, table? They're like, yeah, like if you get some brochures in there. I was like, I don't, I don't have any of that stuff. And they're like, well, every missionary has those things. That's what they And I was like, I'm, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I'm not a missionary, bro. I'm, I'm moving to Boston. I'm not. So, so I had this kind of weird perception thing going on in my head. But the more I realized, the more I thought about this, I was like, yeah, but my, I, I, I'm living as a missionary. Like I moved, I, I sold my house, I moved to a city, I live in this city, I love this city, I love the people in this city, and, and one of the things I even had to reconcile when I moved there is what if this church plant's like an abysmal failure? Well, then I guess I just get a job and live in this city and love the people there and join another community of believers and worship with them because this is the city, these are the people God's called me to, and I can't help but radically reorient my life to reach them. Well, after about three years of church planting, Church is about 100 people. It's very, very around the same time I was even here with you guys last. God began to I, like I, I began to awaken me to a reality that I just wasn't really aware of, and it was this reality: I think I'm the only person in my church that thinks this way. And if that's true, then it's my fault. I had begun creating a culture where I'm the missionary and everyone's responsibility is to go invite their friend to come and hear the missionary. 
Instead of embracing this one simple truth that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a missionary. And I begin to see areas in our ministry where we were trying to create space between becoming a follower of Jesus and being on mission with Jesus. Church, you need to understand something. When you read through the Gospels and you see the invitation of Jesus Christ, there is no distinction between being a follower of Jesus and being on mission with Jesus. The invitation to follow Jesus is the invitation to be on mission with Jesus. And so I begin to realize, like, and so I just want to share with you some of the things that I began to learn and understand better about mission because hopefully this will be a challenge to you as you realize and begin to embrace everything that God's called you to do for the sake of the gospel, for his glory, and for the good of the people in this city. Um, what I had to come to realize is, first thing I had to realize was, I wasn't the only one that thought this way. Because to be honest, it wasn't me that thought this way to begin with. It was God that thought this way. That this is how God thinks. And what I realized is that it wasn't me who was thinking this way or living missionally, but this was God living missionally through me. It was because God graciously reached out to me that I was even thinking about this in the first place. It was him that reached out to me. It was him that initiated relationship with me. And it wasn't me living missionally. It was God living missionally through me. After all, mission is his idea. See, what we have to realize is that the church is not sent on a mission by God. Rather, God is already on mission and the church has been invited to join him. You know what you need to know? You need to know that God loves Kansas City more than you ever could. God loves your children more than you ever could. He loves your, he loves your spouse more than you ever could. That God is already on mission in this city. God is already up to something. God is already going and doing and we've been invited to play a part in that, to join him in his efforts in our city. This is a significant paradigm shift for most of us because when we think about mission in the church, we tend to think about a bunch of stuff we do for God. When in actuality, mission is getting out of the way so that God can do a bunch of stuff through us. We let God do what he's already doing by participating with him in obedience and, and, and partnering with him in the mission that he's already on in our cities. So what we realize is, is that the mission we've been called to is not ours, it's God's. Now this is significant because up until the 16th century, the word mission was only ever used primarily as a descriptor to the Trinity. And what this means essentially is this, is that God the Father sends the Son, and God the Father and the Son send the Spirit. That it's God who's on mission. It's God who's a missionary God. It's God who came. It's God who sends. And when we realize that, we come back to this, this kind of thought that, that was, was revolutionary for me. David Bosch says it this way. He says, mission is thereby seen as a movement from God to the world. The church is viewed as an instrument for that mission. Don't, don't miss this. There's church because there's mission, not vice versa. I'm going to read that again because that's a significant paradigm shift for the average Christian. Mission is thereby seen as a movement from God to the world. The church is viewed as an instrument for that mission. There is church because there's mission, not vice versa. God is already on mission. The church is just the vehicle God, by his grace, chooses to use for that end. So God is already on mission, and what we realize is that we get to participate in mission Right Or to participate in mission is to participate in the movement of God's love toward people since God is a fountain of sending love. Look, when you go back to the Bible and you read through the story, one of the, one of the issues is one of the things we talk about often at Life Community is that until you, know, until you come to realize that the Bible is not a story about us, you, you won't fully understand mission. You won't fully understand what we're doing here, what God's called us to do and what our purpose is. The Bible's not a story about us and what we do. The Bible's a story about God and what he's already done for us. The Bible doesn't exist so that we can know everything there is to know about God. You can't put everything there is to know about God in one book. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a very big God. The Bible doesn't exist so that we know everything there is to know about God. The Bible exists so that we can know God knows everything there is to know about us. That we are the created here. That he is the hero. He's the creator. It's his story. And when you understand that, then you begin to see this bigger context. For a lot of us, we know like little chapters and chunks and characters, especially if you grew up in church like I did, uh, learning Sunday school stories on, thing, on, on something called flannel graph. Right? So, 
I mean, I, I, my Sunday school experience was like this piece of flannel that someone airbrushed with like this Middle Eastern landscape and all of these people that Velcroed on that were characters of people in the Bible. And I'm pretty sure Jesus, Joseph, Abraham, I'm pretty sure they were all the same dude. <laughs> they just put like a different turban on them every time they came into the scene. We had some crackers or some cookies and some Kool-Aid and we called it done. And so I grew up Growing up in church, I knew all these characters and these peoples and these plots, but I knew them apart from the greater story of God. Let me tell you why that's significant. Uh, if, if I were to explain to you the, the, the book Lord of the Rings, how many of you guys, any Lord of the Rings fans? Most of you guys watched the movie, like me. I didn't bother reading the book. So <laughs> if I was going to explain to you the story of Lord of the Rings, right? If I was going to explain to you the story, if say, have you ever heard of Lord of the Rings? You'd say, no. Seriously? It's an epic story. And all of a sudden I said, there's this guy named Aragorn. And I go through this whole thing explaining who he is, what he's done, what his background is. All of that stuff's important. And you could know everything there is to know about him and still not know anything about Lord of the Rings. This is where most people are at. Most Christians are at a place in their life where they know so much about certain characters and plots, but what they can't do is make sense of how that has anything to do with the greater story of what God is actually up to. Now, the truth is, you need to know that. You need to know about these plots and characters and points, but you need to know those things so that they can point you to the great meta-narrative of Scripture, which is Jesus Christ. So the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. It's about God's pursuit of mankind to rescue, redeem, and restore all of his creation through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Where, does the gospel, where is the gospel first proclaimed? Most of us would say, well, if we go to Matthew, stop. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What does God tell Satan? He goes back, he says, listen, you are an enemy with this woman. You, you will hate her offspring, and you will bruise his heel, and he will crush your head. You know what that is? That's gospel. That's pointing to a day when Jesus is going to come, and he's going to crush sin, death, and the devil on our behalf on the cross of Jesus Christ, and he's going to be buried and raised from the dead, claiming victory over sin, death, and the devil. Satan, you don't get the last word in this story. Sin and death, you don't get the last word in this story. We don't got to wait to Matthew to hear that. This is all throughout God's story. So when we go back to God's story, we ask ourselves this simple question. When do we see an example of mankind initiating mission for God? Versus when do we see God over and over and over and over again pursuing mankind? It's God who's... When I ask you the question, when I, growing up in church, if someone would have said, who's the greatest missionary in the Bible? I would have been, gone back to my flannel graph Rolodex and I would have said, Paul, Paul's the greatest missionary in the Bible. False. God is the greatest missionary in the Bible. This is his story. He's the greatest missionary. And so we begin to realize and see that it's God who comes after us. It's God who's on mission. And there's church because there's mission, not vice versa. Now, we understand that from Genesis Revelation, we see the mission of God is to redeem mankind, to restore all of his creation. The first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, show us a picture of what life was supposed to be. The last two chapters of Revelation 21 and 22 show us what life will be again. And everything in between is the story of God himself coming to rescue and renew all of creation through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's what the entire Bible is about. Now, this is significant because this is the mission of God. The mission of God is to bring glory to himself through redeeming mankind and restoring his creation through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The mission of God is to bring glory to himself through redeeming mankind and restoring his creation through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Listen to these scriptures, Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no one else, nor my praise to carved idols. For the earth, Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
Now, when you read the Bible, what you have to come to the conclusion of, if you're informed by what you know, not by what you speculate, when I just go by what God's revealed to me, I realize very early on that God is utmost in his own affection. That God is primarily concerned with his own glory. Now, as hard as that is for us to hear, because let's be honest, we like to be the center of God's story. We like to be the apple of his eye. But what we realize is, is this is actually comforting. Because we are all broken and marred image bearers of the glory of God in this world. Every single human being has an intrinsic value, worth, and dignity, not because of who they are, but because of who created them. And they bear the image of God, marred and broken as it may be. But we were created to bear the image and glory of God in this world, in His world. And the reason it's comforting to know that God is primarily concerned with his own glory is because a God who is primarily concerned with his own glory will stop at nothing to restore broken images of that glory. And so he comes after us, pursuing us relentlessly. God is the greatest missionary in the Bible. He's the one that pursues us. And so what we end up realizing is that the goal of the church is not just filling pews with Christians. The goal of the church is to see the world filled with his glory. This is what we're here for. This is significant because the important thing to remember is that mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Let me tell you how this breaks down. It breaks down like this. The church and what we do should now revolve primarily around the people we're trying to reach or the people we're trying to keep. The church and everything that it does should revolve primarily around the glory of God. Because of the glory of, listen, you can go anywhere in the world and find organizations and, and, and communities that, that revolve around you. You can find that anywhere in the world. We don't need another organization in this world that revolves around mankind. But the church, the church is where the glory of God is put on display for the world. And that's what draws people in. Listen, rest assured, it's not good programming that woos people into becoming believers. It's the glory of God put on display and they see in Christ what their heart has always longed for, but they couldn't articulate. And so when Jesus is put on display, when the glory of God is put on display, people run to him because they see in him everything their heart longs for and they never could articulate before. This is what the church's goal is. This is why we're here. It's not about, it, 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 it is all about the glory of God. It's about seeing the world filled with His glory. From the beginning of end, the Bible is the great recounting of God's love for fallen humanity. He reaches out to His creation with a plan that He could accomplish alone and without assistance from any created thing, including humanity. One of the greatest realizations any Christian comes to is that God does not need me. God doesn't need me to accomplish his mission and purposes in this world. And, and I know that sometimes we hear this and we're like, what do you mean he doesn't need me? Okay, well, let's just stop and think about that logically. If a God, if, if you start your if you start your view of God by saying, God needs, stop, you just, that, that, God doesn't need anything. He's God. He's completely self-sufficient in and of himself. So when we realize that, that gives mission a whole new profound outlook for us because we realize that God is accomplishing his mission and plan in this world and he doesn't need any assistance in that, but he graciously chooses to include us in that. I don't need you, but I, but I want this for you. Listen, church, mission is something God wants for us, not from us. He wants it for us. He wants us close to Him. He wants us to see gospel transformation, lives transformed, creation being restored. He wants us to have a front row seat to that. And so He invites us to be on mission with him, a plan he could accomplish on his own, but chooses to include us in. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is significant that those who have been so reconciled have now been called to the ministry of reconciliation. How glorious and beautiful and gracious is this plan of God's to take those who were enemies of Him and make them His ambassadors. You know what that is? That's redemption. That's restoration. We see that as we participate in God's mission in this world. Listen to this last verse. It says, He who knew no sin, right, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's so important. Side note here, the gospel is more than the fact that Jesus died for us. The gospel is that Jesus lived for us, then died for us, was buried, then raised from the dead, and ascended unto heaven. That's the gospel. The reason that's important is because of what we learned here in 2 Corinthians, that he who knew no sin, God made him sin for us so that we could become the very righteousness of God. What this means is that on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he'd done everything we ever did. So that when those who come to Christ and put their faith in him, now God treats us as if we've done everything Jesus ever did. And we stand before him, not as the sinful, wretched, guilty people we were, but as the righteous, perfect, and blameless person that Christ is. And so we see how God has transformed us and called us now to be a part of his mission to see mankind transformed, reconciled as a part of his greater restoration in this world. Because of that, we can say conclusively that our mission, what we've been called to do, the reason we are calling, supporting, investing, sending, is so that we can alert people to the rule and reign of God through Christ. Through the announcement of it and our participation in it. Now this is significant because when it comes to mission, Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that evangelism is the mission. Now, don't, don't miss me here. Evangelism is crucial. In other words, listen, you can't just go out and rake up a bunch of leaves at a park and think everyone's going to get saved. Okay? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. The, the gospel in and of itself, like, the gospel itself is, is a verbal interaction. Right? That's why when you hear these catchy phrases like from St. Francis of Assisi who says that we're to preach the gospel at all times to all people but only when necessary use words, it's a really great quote to go in a coffee mug but it's horrible theology. The gospel requires us to verbally share. It's literally, by its own definition, good news. All right, now, here's the deal though. The problem is is that we've said this is all that mission is. In reality, the gospel is not only something that we're called to proclaim, it's also something we're called to demonstrate. And you say, well, which one's more important? Both. No, I mean, but if you had to choose, which one? Both. Both. Which do you think is more important for your neighbor to see? Do you think it's more important for your neighbor only to hear the good news that God saves sinners through life, death, burial, and resurrection? Awesome, yes, he needs to hear that. But if that's all he hears, and nothing else in your life points to the truth of that reality, how profound is that really? 
So what we realize is, is that this mission is far bigger than we know. And if we're going to alert people to the rule and reign of God in Christ, listen, when people come to Jesus and they get saved, the purpose of them getting saved. Now, the benefit of them getting saved is, yes, they don't go to hell. So we don't, we don't, that's in the Bible. We're not like, we're not, we don't run from that. The penalty of rebelling against God, refusing to accept the free gift of substitutionary atonement he gives us through Jesus Christ, the penalty for that is separation from God forever. And that is an eternity in hell. The Bible's clear about that. So the benefit of salvation is, being, is, is literally having the wrath of God poured on Jesus instead of you. When you go back to the story of God, by the way, I just love this thought. When people say stuff like, well, go back to the Old Testament. We don't do things like that anymore. We don't practice the death penalty. Yes, we do. We do practice the death penalty. The death penalty was Jesus dying on our behalf. The reality is, is that all sin leads to death. But God in his grace poured out our wrath and judgment on Christ and killed him instead. And now those who put their faith in what God has done for us through Christ, we get to, we get to bypass Death and separation from God, and we get to experience and inherit eternal life. But the reality is, is when we look at this, and we see this over and over and over again, we just continue to see that while the benefit is that we no longer, right, that we no longer have to experience the wrath of God and separation from Him for eternity, the purpose of it is that we would become worshipers of God. This is why we want people to come to faith in Jesus, so that they would worship Jesus. So that they would lead their children to worship Jesus. Because in worship, and here's the beauty of this, is that God's glory, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. It's actually what my neighbors crave the most, but don't know. So I want them to become worshipers of Jesus. And I want the world to be full of His glory. And I want God to be known in every single nook and cranny of all of His creation. We don't evangelize out of a fear for man's soul. We evangelize out of a love for God's glory. I want to see my neighbors worship Jesus. I want to see my city worship Jesus. I want to see their lives transformed for the glory of God. So we see that this is our mission, but here's the deal. We proclaim that, but we also demonstrate that through the way that we serve our community, that we love others, that we serve, what's the primary way that the world will know that we are his disciples? By the love that you have one for another. So we're to live our lives in such a way, church, that the world around us has a front row seat to what it looks like to love each other the way God has loved us. And we serve and we love and we invest and we care for and we begin to equally demonstrate and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of His kingdom in our midst. So let me tell you what this looks like practically, because if we're not careful, this can become this kind of very high kind of theological, okay, for the glory of God, mission, world restoration. Let me just tell you how this fleshes out practically. Thankfully, because God is a missionary God, He does the demonstration for us. So the framework for what it looks like to do mission like this is incarnationally. Let me put it to you this way. God accomplished his, his mission incarnationally. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We just started a brand new series in the book of John. We'll probably be in the book of John for like 18 months. Maybe... Maybe longer. And as you go through this, man, there are volumes of books written on the book of John. There are volumes of books written on the first five verses of the book of John. Let me tell you the easiest way to understand this. That word in the beginning was the word. It's, it, it, it's logos. It literally means a word understood. When you realize that the word, capital W, is a he, and the he is Jesus himself, you realize that what John is, is, is putting out here is that we're to understand God through Jesus. Jesus is how we understand God. And so what happens is the Word was in the beginning with God, the Word was God, there wasn't anything that was made that was made without Him, right? And what does this Word do? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Now that word dwelt is significant. It literally means to tabernacle or to tent among us. Now there's all kinds of stuff that I can't get into today that I get really excited about and worked up in my nerdy theological brain. And that is this, like when you go back to the Old Testament and you see the temporary tabernacle centralized among God's people, this is the place they come to dwell and, and enjoy the presence of God. That's now been Jesus. The dwelling place of God in the world is Jesus. He's the temporary... Wonderful language there. We can't get into today. Sorry. But what it primarily means is God moved in. He moved in. He put up a tent in our backyard. My boys and I, my, my two oldest boys are, are Cub Scouts. I never did Cub Scouts when I was a kid. Um, I did Awanas. Uh, and it's funny, when I moved to a part of the country who had never even heard of Awana, they were like, I was like, what is Cub Scouts all about? And they're like, explain to you. I was like, oh, it's like Awana. And they're like, I wasn't saying that to my lost neighbors. I was saying that to like friends, like people that had grown up in church. They're like, uh, I don't know what that is. What I realized is, is that Cub Scouting is like, it's over 100 years old. Okay, so Cub Scouting isn't like Awana. Awana's like Cub Scouting. You know what I mean? So, uh, but my two oldest boys, uh, they, they're Cub Scouts, and so they, like, we go camping and stuff like that. And a lot of times, uh, because of the age of my youngest three, we don't get to go like, out somewhere camping, so we do what we call backyard camping. Right? And so we set up the tent, the fire pit, and we just sleep outside, and we camp outside. Right? You know what the beauty of that is? If I've got to go to the bathroom, I can. <laughs> and I can actually use real toilet paper. That's pretty awesome. If I'm hungry, I can go to the fridge. Right? And on worst case scenario, if it's too cold, too many bugs, and all that, I'll just go right back up my own bed and go to sleep. <laughs> I love this analogy that when Jesus moves in, he doesn't, he doesn't come to mansion among us. He doesn't come and live in this gated community of prominence. He comes in tents among us. He moves into our backyard. Why? Because when he moves into our backyard, then he shares our food, shares our bathroom, shares our bedroom, and shares every nook and cranny of your life. He's not just interested in being your neighbor. He wants to move in. And so Jesus comes and he moves in, right? God in the flesh comes and he moves in. Jesus did not live a life of detachment. He lived a life of involvement. He moved in. He lived where he could see firsthand human sin and blasphemy, where he could experience human diseases and observe human mortality, poverty, and brokenness. The incarnation of Jesus is more than a baby in a manger. It's proof positive that God is a missionary God, that he loves us and pursues us by sending his son to come alongside us, become one of us, and share our environment and our problems. Jesus came and dwelt among us for 30 years before anyone knew hardly anything about him. Listen, can you just take that in for a second? God the creator of the world, moved in, became one of us, and lived here on mission for 30 years in almost utter obscurity. You know what I look at that sometimes and I think to myself, Jesus, God, lived here for 30 years in obscurity before, he re before you really saw kind of tangible fruit and, 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 and this, this kind of expansion of ministry. I think to myself, God, how long would I be willing to wait and live in obscurity to see the fulfillment of everything you've called me to do? Would I be willing to move into a city and live there for 30 years in obscurity before we actually began to see tangible evidence of the ministry that we have been called to? And yet Jesus comes in and lives in obscurity among us. He moved into the neighborhood, knew his neighbors by name, and renewed it through his acts of healing, love, and teaching. He moved in. He saw all of life as ministry. It was the whole reason he came, right? Everything that Jesus did gave taste and flavor to the kingdom of God. When Jesus moved into a neighborhood, he knew people's names. He moved in. He loved them. He served them. He healed them. He teached. And everything that Jesus did gave taste and flavor to the kingdom of God. When Jesus healed the blind, he helped people understand that in his kingdom, people aren't blind. When he fed them, he helped them realize and see and get a taste that in his kingdom, people aren't hungry. 
when He gave them water to drink, when He did all of these miraculous things, healed the lame, the sick, even raised the dead, He was sending a very clear message that in His kingdom, this is not the way things are. And everything that Jesus did by moving in gave taste and flavor to the kingdom of God. So what implications does this have for us? A lot. Because we realize John 20, 21-22, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. We are sent by Jesus in the same way that he was sent by God the Father, incarnationally. Now just so we don't get too confused on that, right? what we realize here is that what this means is not only is the incarnation of Jesus central to the message of the gospel, but it's also a framework or a picture for how we do mission. The frame for mission is incarnational ministry. This is how the mission is known and seen and felt. Incarnationally, it means we move in. And listen, this isn't about being Jesus for people. This is something I grew up with and I struggled with for a very long time because I heard this often, that I was called to be Jesus to people. You know where the hang-up came on that? I was terrible about being Jesus to people. And if their only view of Jesus were me, they're never going to want that Jesus, I assure you. But the beauty of this is that we don't have to be Jesus to people. Do you know why, church, that we don't have to be Jesus to people? Because Jesus is already Jesus to people. We just need to let Jesus be to people what only Jesus can be to people. And so how do we do this? How is Jesus Jesus to people through me? By the power of His Spirit. You know what this means? That means that as a husband, my end goal is not for my wife at the end of my life to go, wow, he was a really great husband. The goal is that I live my, my life in such a submissive, surrendered way that at the end of my life, my wife goes, Christ is the better husband. That it might, with my children, I don't, I don't live my life with my children in such a way for the end goal that when I'm gone, they look at me and say, man, my dad was the best dad ever. I live my life in such a submissive, surrendered way that my kids look at me and say, Christ is the better father. My life exists for Christ to be on display, which means I have to fully admit when people say stuff to me like, wow, you guys really have it together. It seems like your family's doing awesome. When these people come into Amsterdam and to the, uh, into the shop and they talk with these guys and they say to them things like, well, you guys have your family. It looks like you got some stuff going on. This is it. This is the incarnational opportunity to say, yes, anything good you see in me is Christ in me. He's the better father, I assure you. I know me outside of Christ. You wouldn't be asking for my advice. Christ is the better. So how is Jesus, Jesus to people through me? By the power of his spirit. Church, just wrestle with this a little bit. This is something that as a church we've been wrestling with a lot lately. I don't even wrestling with, we're kind of just being crushed by it. By our complete lack of dependence on the spirit of God in our life. He, listen, don't miss this because if we're not careful, I heard the same scripture you heard growing up, which is simply this, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Don't stop there. Don't stop there because then what we do is we say, let's go out and manufacture ourselves into these Jesus people that someone's going to want. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, I want, as, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Then what did he do? Then he breathed the Spirit of God into them. So Jesus is Jesus to people through me by the power of the Spirit. So here's what we come to realize. You read through the Gospels. By what power? Now we know that Jesus is the God-man. He never gave up his divinity. He just simply took on humanity. Right? But he lays, apart, he lays aside the independent use of his divine rights, becoming submissive to God the Father, and living in complete obedience to him by submission to the Spirit's working in his life. It's important that this happens this way because Jesus did exactly what we were created to do. He just did it perfectly. So if we get that, right? Go back to the Gospels. By what power? Jesus goes out into the desert for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan himself, yet without sin. By what power does he defeat temptation in his life? By the power of the Spirit. Right? Jesus, we find out in Luke also that 
that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, teaches and preaches. So what do people say about Jesus' teaching? What do they say? Nobody talks like this guy. He speaks as an authority. By what power does Jesus preach? The power of the Spirit. By what power does Christ perform miracles? By the power of the Spirit. We're still not impressed. By what power does God the Father raise Jesus from the dead? By the power of the Spirit. Can you just take this one thought in? Just the same Spirit that was alive and well and at work in Jesus is the same Spirit that's alive and well and at work in us. That is significant. And it's only through the Spirit's power in our life that Jesus can be Jesus to our neighbors and to the other people in our life. The pursuit of this mission has to take us. Listen, if we embrace this incarnational mission that God's called us to, it takes us beyond the four walls of any church building. It has to. It has to take us beyond these four walls. And it takes us into the places where people live and work. We must begin to see all of life as ministry. Our lives exist as a type of language that God wants to use to tell the world of his kingdom. How many of you guys, like, if, if you've ever gone to a movie theater and watched a, a movie trailer, now, I'm like a movie trailer, I love movie trailers. I'm like one of those people who gets disappointed when I'm going to the movies and we're going to be there late and I'm not going to see new trailers. When we go rent DVDs, I'll bring it home and, like, like if, not that she would now, but, like, because she knows, but if my wife starts a movie and she's like, oh, it's just the trailers, I would be like, just the trailers? How are we going to know what's going on out there, right? So like, so what's good, what's crazy is when you go to the theater and you sit through a movie trailer that's really, really good, what happens when it's over? People go, I can't wait to see that. I'm going to go see that. Do you want to go see that? What was the date it came out, right? They're having these conversations. In the same way that everything Jesus did gave taste and flavor to the kingdom of God, the church has been called to live their lives in such a way that we give taste and flavor to the kingdom of God. That people, when they rub elbows with us, when they get around us, when they see how we live our lives, and we see what we're centralized around, they get a taste of wa- a waft, a flavor of the kingdom of God. You know what we are? We're a movie trailer. The church is called to live their lives in such a way that as we interact with the community and world around us, the world looks at us and goes, I want to see what's coming next. If this is already what Jesus is up to, I want to see what this thing looks like in its fullness. I want to see the whole thing. This is what we've been called to, living our lives incarnationally. You know what this means? It means we live our lives in such a way that only the gospel could explain it. So if the frame for this type of mission is incarnational, then the model for this type of mission is discipleship. It all starts with making disciples. A disciple is someone who follows another person or another way of life and who submits themselves to the invitation and challenge of that leader away. In short, a disciple is a follower of Jesus and his way of life. Jesus himself said, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has commanded us to make disciples who make disciples. This is what Jesus has called us to. Mike Breen says this, uh, he's an author, pastor, says, Jesus' model for seeing heaven colliding with earth, for seeing the kingdom of God advance in a community, for seeing the world put to rights and people becoming Christians was discipleship. Jeff Vanderstelt, another pastor, says it this way, that we've been called as a church to be a family of missionary servants who make disciples who make disciples. The reason this is so important is because If you only focus, church, on mission, if you only focus on mission, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll make disciples. But if you focus on making disciples, you will always get mission. I want you to know that when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the longer you're a Christian, and some of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive, and the gospel becomes more intimate to you every year of life. You know what you're realizing the longer you're a Christian? Not that the gospel is getting bigger. It's just a lot bigger than you ever thought it was. And you begin to realize that the gospel is central to all of life. And that God is accomplishing more through the gospel than I ever thought possible. So the reality is, is when we talk about making disciples who make disciples, you have to understand how that affects things on a personal level and how it affects things on a cosmic level. You know, like just so you know, when you talk about, when you read Revelation, that Jesus is making all things new. Did you realize that every single conversation you're having, making disciples, leading people to faith and repentance in Jesus and living a life after his way of life, every disciple you're making is contributing to the cosmic restoration of the universe. That's pretty significant. And the way this works is, is that we realize that the gospel, when we see it in the Bible, we see it through two lenses. The first lens is what we would call like the zoomed-in version. If you look at the gospel and everything Jesus Christ did for us, you zoom in and see how it changes an individual's heart and life. Right? The good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto righteousness for all those who believe. It means that I am far more wretched and sinful than I ever dared believe. But in God, through Christ, I am far more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. And that transformation, the gospel in that way is powerful enough to transform and change my life. But when you zoom out from the gospel, you realize that not, we, we learn from the gospel how and to what end God saves. But when we zoom out from the gospel, we see why God is saving. Why is God doing this? And, it's in, in every, and, and what we see is that through the gospel, every single person that is being transformed and restored is a part of a larger restorative work that God is accomplishing in the world to make all things new. And for whatever reason, by God's grace, He's called us to play a part in that. To make disciples who make disciples. And as we make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, do you know what's happening? The world is being full of His glory. And every nook and cranny is having the gospel incarnated for them, demonstrated and proclaimed for them. And as this happens, we begin to see entire segments of our world change gloriously by the gospel of Jesus Christ and restoration taking place. Let me put it to you like this way, because sometimes it's hard for us to grasp how making disciples who make disciples is accomplishing the greater restorative work of the greater restorative work of God in the world. Think about it this way. What would happen if everybody in your neighborhood, just your 15 blocks, what would be different if the kingdom of God was fully realized by every single one of your neighbors? Let me put it in a different way. What would happen? How would your neighborhood be different if every single person in your 15-block radius was a Christ follower? What would be different? What would be different if the business sector was full of Christ followers? We talked about this in our life group last week, a couple weeks ago, and I was like, what would happen? How is God accomplishing the purposes of the gospel, the restoration of all things? Through disciples making disciples. So if we're making disciples who make disciples, what happens if the entire business district is full of God's glory? And one of the, one of the, the newer Christians in our group was like, well, they'd be far more generous. And I'm like, go with that. What else? They'd probably be aware more of the needs of others instead of their own. They'd probably start to come to realize 
that never before in the history of the world has there been such a small group of people who control so much of the world's resources. They probably care more about people that are hungry, people that don't have clean drinking water, people that have needs that are met. What would happen if our education system was full of Christ followers? Here's a really good one for us. What would happen if our government was full of Christ followers? That's like a, that's like a, a grenade I just threw out there. I don't want to have that conversation with you, right? But here's the deal. Every one disciple at a time, by God's grace, we are participating on mission with him to accomplish the greater restorative work of God in this world. You know what that is? That's mission. So let me just say a couple more things and I'm done. One, we have to understand that discipleship doesn't start with conversion. It starts with a conversation. Most of us have a, a, a skewed view of what discipleship is, so we think we evangelize and then we disciple. But this isn't what Jesus called us to do. Jesus said, go and make disciples. The very fact that he's asking us to make something means they're not already. What this means is that discipleship starts with introduction, not conversion. So you have, if you see it that way, all of life is ministry, then you begin to realize all these people in your life, you're just at different levels of discipling them. If you were in Sunday school, you realize that on some levels, you have people in your life, like Corey mentioned, like Walter in Amsterdam, who's not a believer, but he's having conversation. He's sharing personal things. They're praying together. That's discipleship. Even before Walter becomes a believer. And then you have other people in your life that are believers who have come to faith in Jesus, and you're still discipling them and helping them understand what it means to make disciples who make disciples. So when you begin to see all life as ministry, you look at the people at your work different. You look at the people in your neighborhood different. And what you see is that all of them are just at different tiers of discipleship. Right? So we realize that this is ultimately what God has called us to do. To make disciples who make disciples for the glory of God. And as we do that, we're participating in ways that we never knew possible. And partnering with God in the advancement of his kingdom, and the accomplishment of his restorative work in this world. Mission is so much bigger than we ever knew, but it really starts with making disciples. Can I ask you a question? And this is the last question I'm going to ask you. What's your neighbor's name? See, it'd be easy, and I love, I love that Glenwood is so, that you guys are so intentional about saying, man, let's take, a, mission is too big for, like, let's take an, a week to emphasize what God is doing around the world. And if we're not careful, it becomes very easy for us to see mission in this big lens like we've been talking about today, that we're seeing the glory of God fill the world. So, so if, you're, if you're sitting there right now, like I have many times, and going, this is so much bigger than I even knew. I just want you to ask yourself that simple question. What's your neighbor's name? And if you don't know your neighbor's name, probably the most profound thing you can do for this entire missions conference is find out. And if you say, well, I know my neighbor's name. Do you know everybody's name on your block? Start there. You say, well, I know everybody's name on my block. Awesome. Do you know their personal needs? How are you praying for them more intelligently? How much time have they spent in your home? This is honestly where mission begins. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for this day. God, I pray that we would contemplate these things. God, it is overwhelming when we think about the great work that you're doing in this world and what, everything you've accomplished for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we begin to understand, God, that you've not only done a great work in us, but you're also doing a great work through us and that, God, as we participate in this mission through making disciples who make disciples, that, God, we are contributing in some way by your grace to your greater restorative work in this world. God, may we realize 
that you've called us to, to proclaim and to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see all of life as ministry, and that every act of mission that we, we, we intentionally move forward on, that every act of grace that we extend toward our community is only an extension of an act of grace and mission that you've already graciously extended to us. God, help us to realize that God is the greatest missionary, that you, God, that you, God, are the one who came after us and have now sent us by your grace to go and tell others about this gracious, glorious, wonderful, beautiful, sovereign God who loves them and gave his life for them. So God, we love you. We thank you. And Lord, we pray that whatever it is that someone is wrestling with in their heart, God, I pray that, that as a response to all of this, God, that many would just ask themselves very simple questions. How have I been leveraging my relationships for the gospel? How do I view my home and my resources as a weapon for the gospel? Do I know my neighbor's name and how can I be more intentional about getting to know them, serving them, loving them, and moving into that neighborhood for the sake of the gospel that they might see in me a piece of the kingdom of God and want to experience and see the real thing? God, I pray that you would use each of us, not just here in Kansas City, but in Amsterdam and Quincy and all over the world, that you would use your people, God, making disciples who make disciples so that we would see your world filled with your glory. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.